Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. I want to uh, continue and build upon what I said last week about the very unusual profile of this community, the Ashkenazi community, especially when it starts in um, the High Middle Ages, which is what they call it, the 9, 10, 11 hundreds, and uh, comes together in, in unique ways. And I want to focus on some of those before we proceed from there to talk about the actual about the actual Crusades. Um, and I tried to explain last week the kind of uh, clouded past in terms of details, where we come from. Nobody knows exactly where the Ashkenazi Jews first arrived and when precisely. We have a general kind of idea, but we know what it eventually morphs into. And uh, one of the key aspects of this culture, which lasts for a thousand years, is uh, that Ashkenaz is uh, the land of uh, Minhagim and Piyutim, the land of uh, customs and the special uh, prayers that people make up and stick into the sitter, which when they try to do that in the 19th century, they call it Reform Judaism uh, because they're motivated perhaps by different uh, ideas. But when it, in the 9th century, not the 19th century, then it's uh, something uh, quite different. I want you to understand that what we're talking about is there are communities in France and Germany in which somebody will come up with a new poem and they'll stick it right in the middle of Shemun right in the middle of the Krishma, right in the middle of the Birchus Krishma, which from a purely Talmudic sensibility uh, breaks the rules. And in spite of what I just said, we're going to do it anyway. And the reason we want to do it anyway is because I'm, I want to get across over here, this is a community which is very pious, but they decide when to do the rules and when not to because Gedolim understand that sort of thing. And who's the God all over here? My mother, my father, my brother, my, my, my grandparents. And if they did it, they knew what they're doing. And people live through times when, when, when this is happening. Uh, this phenomenon, for anyone who's at all familiar with, as they say, the, the normative halachic sensibilities, is really remarkable, and it bespeaks a rather extraordinary veneration of um, ancestors and uh, of their own contemporary uh, Gedol, big rabbis as they saw it, and Paitanim, and uh, poets. Uh, many of the great poems are put together by the big rabbis. Many are put together by Chazanim and others. And yet, the public says, this is really cool. This would be great in the middle of uh, Avarab or something, or right in the middle of before the Shema, or right in the middle of Shema and Asri, and we're going to do it. And uh, not only that, but then it becomes hardened in cement. This is the way one does it, and anyone who leaves them out is actually the one who's doing something wrong. The best example of the kind of remarkable aspect of this is, uh, you know, when you take things to its extreme, if anybody ever looks in the Modim uh, Balocha by Rosevin, I'm sure many are familiar with that uh, classic work, and in his 
uh, and he knows everything. And in his uh, essay on Purim, he has a number of essays on Purim, he talks about the old tradition of getting drunk, because that's what it is, it's an old tradition. Aside from the Talmudic side of the discussion, it's just something that went on for hundreds and hundreds of years, long, long time, whether you like it or not. And it, entered, it was certainly part and parcel of the culture of uh, Jews long ago, a thousand years ago, so much, and, and Ashkenaz as well as others, so much so that it enters into the Siddur. And Rav Zevin, uh, listen to this, you have over here a piyut, that's a religious poem inserted into the prayers, Shenichnas uh, Mamachser Vitri, which is in the Machser Vitri, which is, which is compiled by the son-in-law, was it the student of uh, Rashi? So you're talking about long, long ago, a very uh, old and authoritative uh, Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz. And a lot of it has to do with Zmiros and Slichos and the type of things that you say over there. In other words, where he came from, very yekish. They really cared that you should add this extra little slicha or piyot or something in, in, in this occasion. And he interprets what they mean when the poetry is a little bit ex- extensive. And here we have for uh, Myriv, Batoris Myriv Lepurim. Uh, in other words, on Purim night in Shul, when you're davening Myriv, which is a halachic thing, um, and these are German and French Jews, and Rav Zev himself says, this is remarkable. Here's how it goes. In other words, you basically go something like this. And then before you say, then they all recite, to drink and party with wine. Okay? Can you imagine it? Okay? Uh, it, it, but uh, then when you get to the next one, Belayla Hazay Yishkuru Kol Yitzurim, this in in right? And somebody obviously made the. If you're telling me that this was done for what they call in the yeshiva the shtick in a Purim play, or in a Purim suda when someone's making a grauman up, I understand that. If you're telling me they're doing this in the tefillah, and yeah, right? Belayla Hazay Yishkuru Kol Yitzurim Lehizaker Chok Ashenikav Purim Aruho Isha Yado Yarm Lishdos My Marm. Cursed is the person. Who drinks water? <laughs> who raises hand to drink Mayim Hamarim, the cursed water, on this night? Borchato Hashem, Oheva Mo Yisrael. Can you imagine it? Or Purim Yishtu Yayin Kol Roeu Achi Lo Yake Ishes Reehu. Right? Everybody should drink till they can't tell who the other one is. Lo Yikach Neshech B'Tarvis Ar Yishtu Yayin Michavis B'Lo Chag Purim. Anybody drinks the wine from the barrel? Knows he's really swilling away. He's not chayiv if he does neshech and tarvis, right? And then berachat Hashem go al Yisrael and so forth, and what's and so on and so forth. Now that's an extreme example, but it brings home my point. Uh, this is a time I don't know how it got written and I don't know how it got in there, but if if I told you that's what Rashi did in his thing, then that's what we do. And the sort of counter argument is this: Is this right? Is it wrong? How do you balance this against normative halachic practice? If we could use this. Right? It's a funny world. This is, you know, that of course is true also, but we do what we do. And this unbelievable self-confidence in the rectitude of everything that they do is absolutely characteristic, as they say, of the land of Minhagim and the land of Piyutim, so much so that you end up um, with a world in which I will not go quite so far as to say the Minhag is more important than the Din, but I will. <laughs> Right? Which reminds me of a famous story I saw once from my uh, favorite heretic, 
Dr. Lewis Jacobs in London where he said that uh, this would happen in London in the 1950s, 40s or 50s. And a guy didn't want to sit Shiva only for three days. Now it's more common. At that time it was so common. And it must have been a, a German, British Jew, something like that. They didn't know what to do. You know, his mother died you know, seven days. He wants to sit for three days. And so they got a hold of some Choshev Rov. That's just the way he told the story in London, I don't know, or Abramsky, somebody like that. And he went to the guy to try to explain to me. He says, you got to sit seven days. That's the din. I'm not, it's not me. It's the din. And the guy said, that's the din? I thought it was a mid-hug. If I knew it was a din, I wouldn't sit ship at all. <laughs> right? Meaning, if it's a mid-hug, then you do it. That's, all he did is take to ridiculous extremes. You know, something has its origins in the nine and ten hundreds. Okay? We're not used to it because we come from now the current from culture has a different sensibility because it's gone through many, uh, what shall I say, uh, metamorphoses and it's reflected and the difference of what I'm talking about is reflected again in two famous stories uh, that they say about the Shagas Aryeh, who was the most famous rabbi certainly or one of the most famous of the 18th century and one of the big Litvish rabbi of all times. It's coming from a much more Talmudic and Lithuanian sensibility and he uh, very famously uh, in his career, you have to understand, he was looked upon as the man, the Vilna Gaon looked up to him and all that. And in the course of his career, he eventually became the rabbi in Metz, which is a very important community in Ashkenaz. At that time, like now, it's part, it became part of France, uh, but it's German Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, old, old community. Next week when we get to it, that's where the first uh, violence in the Crusades happened, uh, the, the Jews in Metz. And uh, when he comes there, as before Shavuos, very famous story, and it's a question about Akdomus. I think everybody here knows what I'm talking about. Akdomus, the famous poem that you recite in the morning of Shavuos. Uh, many people, uh, or if I was going to say, uh, many people, if they go through the night, so maybe they're half asleep when they're, when they're saying it, and that's a, a compliment to them. But you all seriously know what I'm talking about. And the Akdomus is from the 10 hundreds of Ashkenaz. The Akdomus was composed by a chazan who was a contemporary of Rashi. I, I might have lived in Mainz, actually. And uh, it's, a wonder, it's an Aramaic. And it's a wonderful poem. That's what it is. It's a piyut about the glory of God in heaven. He describes in very anthropomorphic terms. And uh, that's one big theme about there. And the other theme is, and once again, in the context of the incipient crusades and the atmosphere that pervades Ashkenaz during these years, the second half of the poem is all about how the nations of the world, the Christians, notice the Gentiles, are trying to seduce the Jews and say, come on over to our side. And the Basulas Bas Yisrael, the Jewish people, so I guess, you've got to be kidding. In other words, besides everything else, you're a loser. You get it? If you only knew who my friend was, right? Who, who are, one is, and you, you know, what you have can't match what he can offer and all that. So it's a very powerful poem. But, from, and I got no problem with it, but it's recited in Shachris, or, you know, when they read the Torah, and the question always is, in our world, uh, you call someone up to read the Torah, and then where do you actually recite this? 
Now, I just showed you they had no trouble in those days even having a drinking poem in the middle of Christian or something like that. So the old minhag was to uh, do it in the middle of Kriya Satur, in the middle of Laini. And so basically you call up a coin, and he says, Baruch Hashem Baruch and all that. And then they start the laning. And then in the middle of everything, the guy starts saying, Adam, Smilin, you saw, you know, and everybody does that. I have no trouble with that, but it's what you call a hefsik. You understand? It's an interruption. And if you have a Talmudic sensibility, you say, that's not right. You're supposed to have an uninterrupted reading of the Torah. That's the rules. Look at the Gemara. And so, the Shagasarye, who was this Lithuanian big rabbi, he comes in there and he says, what you do is, you call the guy up, and then you do the Akdomus, you recite the poem, and then you do Barku and all the rest of it. And they said, this is Metz. For a thousand years, we do it our way. <laughs> you, know? you call the guy up, he has the Aliyah, they start in the middle of the laning, and then you do the poem. And he said, well, this is just wrong. And he says, this is the way we do it. And he says, I'm telling you, I'm the new rabbi, and I'm telling you, you, you can't do it this way. And they said, you can say whatever you want. That's the way we're doing it. <laughs> this is my, my Bubby did it, my Zadie did it, my grandfather, all the rest of it. Don't tell me. This is it. He walked out. He, never, he was a rabbi there for 27 years. He never walked again into the shul. Uh, he has a little minion. And everybody was happy. <laughs> you understand? And the point is like this. Is the irresistible force and the immovable object. Right? Who wins? And it's a wonderful example of what I'm talking about. They knew he's a big deal and all the rest of it, obviously. What's that got to do with anything? But this is how we do it here. And that is the Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz sort of thing. Uh, that story has been parodied. The way I heard it when I was young, and I saw it written, and maybe true, you never know, but I think it's a parody, goes when they, Shah uh, who again, I can't overemphasize how big a person he was in the learning, comes to town, so they told him, you're now the new Rob, the new Avbezdin, and these German Ashkenaz guilds, they took the customs very seriously, and they said, here's the Pinkas HaKahal. This is the official uh, record book of the community, and anyone who gets elected uh, to be the new rabbi here, which is not many people, gets to add two paragraphs. He can add two takonas or something to the uh, customs of the community. And he writes in there, lo tigno, lo signo, lo, so he puts in the, the Ten Commandments. And the reason it's like this, if it's a minute, maybe you'll do it. You see? Now that's, I don't know if it really happened, but it's a battle of the two sensibilities. And if you want to understand the type of people who are akshonim, the way I'm describing it, then you want to go into time. Hold that thought, because they're going to take this into the crusader violence. They'll be surrounded by overwhelming force, and they'll say this, we don't move. I'd rather kill myself, literally, than give it to you. The men and the women and the children. It's a, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's that kind of mentality. This is what we do, this is how we are, and nothing moves us. Okay? So it's a very powerful sort of image that emerges over here. And I can tell you that after the Crusades, the Piyutim and their halachic appropriateness, and uh, depending where, you put, you know, where, where they go into the prayer book, that is not questioned anymore because the people who are writing this are very often martyrs or survivors of massacres and they've, so to speak, earned their rights to stick anything in wherever they want, and, and that's the way it goes. So this is the origins of what you call the, the Yekasha kind of a culture and mentality, which has deep roots, as you see over here, 
going back already into the ten hundreds and and perhaps even beforehand. Um, two very good examples of what I'm talking about are uh, one well known and one less well known is Rashi, who is an Ashkenazi Jew in France, living at the time I'm talking about in the ten hundreds. He lives from ten forty to eleven oh six. He lived through the first crusade, and the very first Rashi in the Shas in the Talmud. Um, many know the very first Mishnah says, "When do you read Shema?" And uh, okay, and what does the Mishnah say? Many are familiar with this. Uh, up to Tzaisik Ochavim. You can't read Shema until the stars come out. Uh, no, if you want to be Yotze, the Krishma. And Rashi immediately says, We don't. Uh, we dive at 7 o'clock Marv or something like that at 7 30, uh, whatever. Uh, now, it doesn't occur to Rashi to say like this Maybe we're all wrong. You know, the Talmud says you're supposed to do it after. Well, of course, you're not wrong. This is what we do. But where did it come from? I don't know, but this is what we do. Right? And therefore, he immediately says like this Well, Anybody who remembers this, I guess you're Yotze the Mitzvah Krishma when you do Krishma Lamita. You say it later anyway. You get it? But to, to say, gee, maybe uh, you know, the emperor has no clothes and maybe we've all been davening Marv at the wrong time for the last 100 or 200 years. What, are you crazy? You know, of course not. Rebbeinah Gershom davening Marv too early. You see, that mentality doesn't extend into Sepharad. It's very interesting. If you study the Sephardic culture, and I'm talking about culture that you find in the rabbinic literature, very often at the time they say, this is what they're doing until now, but now that they discovered that this was a mistake, they'll switch it. And many times this happens in Sephardic. They're much more flexible and malleable. And the Ashkenaz, uh, the reverse. Okay, uh, Here I stand and here I stand. And uh, another one I saw myself just the other day. I'll, I'll share this with you. We were doing it a couple weeks ago in, in, um, in Shulon Shabbos where uh, just a little point, and it's from the 19th century, but it'll be exactly an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, in the Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch in the bottom, that's what you call the Sharmatsuyan Balocha. Some know it's a collection of different responses and things like this. And the question is about, you know, the Hasidim have the custom of going to the mikveh, the men, at, on, on Chavez. And the thing is, well, what, what, is hot water or cold water? And according to the Talmudical, you're not supposed to ever go on Chavez in hot water. It's called the Gzeris HaBolonim, Gzeris HaMechatzos. But uh, here you are in Hungary or Poland in the 1800s, and all these people going to the mikvah. Man, I repeat, on the daytime of Saturday, and it's a hot water or cold water. And he quotes over here, this is a very short paragraph, uh, where he says, Kosev and Mishnabura, the Mishnabura is, of course, the Chavetz Chaim, a Litvak, the normative, you know, process. And he says, The Tzarek Lizar B'Shabbos Tiyan Mikvah the water cannot be hot. The most can be lukewarm. It's hot water. You're already running into Talmudic prohibitions. It's a, it's a din against the law. But if you look in the response from the Sansa Rebbe, right, Reb Chaim Halvashtam, one of the most famous Hasidic Rebbe's of all time, okay, uh, who lived in the 1800s, who was a Visnagli who converted to Hasidism and then became a big Rebbe. So he said, Matir Litbul Gambachaman. He says, you can do it. You can go in hot water even to man for the mikvah. Because of the afalgav to mitzad din osir. And this is what he writes. He says, even though halachically it's prohibited, kvarnogu mikomogun kvarnogu kol gadoli derena hitabahanach lemisrael. But we do it, so it's okay. Okay? You imagine someone would do it in our community, so to speak. You understand? But he's saying like this. Big rebbes did it and other people like that. That's very Ashkenazic. You get it? 
You know, if this one, if the Baal Shem Tov did, and the other one did, I don't know why. They know what they're doing. Leave me alone. You know, it's, it's, and that's, even though that's 19th century and it's uh, Galicia and all the rest of it, but it's really not. It's Eingewurzelt. You know, it really has its roots much deeper, as I say before, in this very interesting Ashkenazic mentality. And as I say before, do not be surprised next week when you see the Ashkenazic Jews faced with overwhelming odds and unbelievable violence, but they will not do what the Jews in Sfarad in Spain do, which is submit to conversion under terrible physical pressure. But uh, to them, their, 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 their life is, is, is cheap, right? They'll say, kill me, no, no one will do it. In fact, you don't have to come out, kill myself. Very, very, very powerful motif. A second uh, very, very interesting aspect of this medieval Ashkenaz is uh, rather unexpected, the role of women. Um, we find in Ashkenaz, uh, especially in the 9, 10, 1100s, that the, there are the, 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 the social reality, which is the of tiny groups of Jews living literally in a hostile sea, cannot fail to have the most powerful and perhaps unexpected consequences in the social and even the religious realm. Now, what does all those fancy words mean? It's always that one or two Jewish families live in a whole town where nobody else is Jewish. It's not New York. It's not Bar Park or B'nai Brock or Lakewood or anything like that, where you have large, compact Jewish communities. That you may have in Sfarad, in Spain, to some degree in the, uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, last year we were in uh, Toledo, Toledo, uh, big, beautiful town. There was a large Jewish community, 3,000 Jews. That was considered humongous once upon a time. Okay? Uh, most of the times it was smaller, and in Ashkenaz, it's 10 families here, two families there, one family here, three families there. Um, very common to have a, a community in which uh, is a minion altogether. You know, nobody can afford to be uh, missing. Uh, it's out of this community you get those famous questions, what, do you have, what if you have nine, can you count a kid with a chumash and all that? This is the communities and the realities out of which this exists. Some people here, I don't know everyone here, some people may have come originally from small towns in America or elsewhere, and you might be a little bit familiar with what I'm talking about. There's an entirely different dynamic. I'm sure you can understand this if you haven't experienced it. There's an entirely different dynamic between living in Baltimore here and now, right now, when you're in the middle of a large, compact uh, community, or, or Cleveland or Lakewood or someplace like that, versus living uh, you know, on the eastern shore of Maryland or out in the middle of nowhere, uh, as sometimes you find a shochet or somebody has to do. You see? And the point I'm trying to make is that in that environment, every person counts, the men, the women, the children. And the notion of he's more important than she is or something like this, it just doesn't match the social reality of it. Uh, to keep the Jewish family going and staying Jewish, uh, the man is choshev, the women is also very choshev, in fact, even more choshev than the man very often. And this cannot but be reflected in cultural changes in which they'll say, maybe the hierarchy in Judaism formally is that the man is first or this, that, and the other. But the reality isn't, you know, without changing the rules, the reality is changed because of the social situation. And therefore, it expresses itself in unexpected ways, uh, even in the religious uh, realm. So uh, that's one very, very important point to keep in mind. You understand? Uh, you can't say this is an all-male sort of thing. There's no such thing as an all-male community. 
when there's five or ten families or 20 families anywhere. It's you need everybody, okay? And everybody is very, the, the contribution that every single person in the community makes is very important. And very often, there could be a woman or whatever that her contribution is more important than that of the other people. It just is. And so here I have an old, old culture, 3,000 and some years old, which is more heavily male-oriented, uh, and, 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 and it's challenged by the uh, realities, the very interesting realities of the new environment in which they find themselves. The, uh, there's, that's one point. The second point is the uh, perhaps unexpected consequences, social consequences of child marriages. In Ashkenaz, as elsewhere, uh, the conditions in the Middle Ages were such, and the predisposition of Jewish culture was such, that they all go for child marriages. I'm sure everybody knows your own grandparents or great-grandparents or great-grandparents all got married when they were 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old if you take the trouble to go back to Europe, wherever. This is the way it was once upon a time. And this has many reasons. Uh, the Talmud is sort of in favor of not child marriages but young teens uh, for various reasons. The uh, Tosafists, the people who live in France, in Ashkenaz during this time, some people who know how to learn will, may remember the beginning Tosis and beginning a second parak of Kedushin where it says you're not supposed to marry a katana, someone who's under 12 years old, but the Bali Tosa, but we do it now because if I have a daughter and I have a dowry and I have the money now, if I wait till she's 12, 13, 15 years old, the money might not be there and she won't get able to get married because in those days without a dowry, you're not going to get married. You understand? And so right or wrong, this is what we do. Once again, it becomes the minhag, which breaks the din. Now, um, think about what I'm about to say. The typical life, I'm giving you social history now, the typical life pattern of a Jewish couple, a responsible Jewish couple, in the time of Rashi, let's say, or afterwards, and a Christian middle class also, which is the following. Here's a couple, they're married, they have, let's say, for argument's sake, four kids. Um, you're a good parent, good mother, good father. You want the best for your kids. It's not college and that sort of thing. You want the best. What do you do? And the answer is, you scrape away whatever money you can and I'm just making a figure up. Let's say it's a prosperous merchant by the standards of the Middle Ages. So let's say for argument's sake, I'm just making a figure up. I have four kids, and I'm able to put 75000 down for each kid. It's not a fortune fortune. It's something, right? But that's what I have. He's a merchant. She's a this. That's what they have. Uh, two sons, two daughters, let's say. So you have two daughters. Uh, you have seventy-five grand for each daughter. Um, now, what's her future going to be? Uh, if you want a secure economic future, the parents think along the following lines. I've got to marry her off to a boy whose family also be able to put up some kind of money so that when they grow up, uh, there'll be something there for them to make a living off of. I want to find someone who can at least put up 75 for his kid or something like that. And so you'll have a young couple, and we're going to marry him off young, who will start off with a nest egg of 150. You don't give kids the money, obviously. So you have that invested. You take that 150, and you put it in what you call a very conservative investment, which you hope to God will <laughs> not fizzle out. And let's say, for example, you have a cousin, a relative, an uncle, a, 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 a reputable business person who's got a good business going, and so you invest 150, or maybe you're prudent, you invest it in five different places, pieces of it. That's how they did it. And the idea is you want to take a piece of that off, by the way, and you're going to spend that on the young man's education. What is the education? 
Um, if he's the unusual type, he's going to be a rabbi, so I'm going to get that small, go to yeshiva. If not, then he got to have a living. He's going to make a parnasa. Now, the boy and the girl I'm talking about are 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, generally speaking. So tell, tell me what you do with a 14-year-old. Okay? And the answer is they got to learn something. How are you going to learn something? I'm going to apprentice him to a relative or, again, or someone that agrees. And I'm going to give that guy five, ten thousand, whatever. And he'll start him from the bottom up in the fur trade, in the lumber trade, in the jewelry business, perhaps in the wheat, in the shipping. Some, and you start, and, and you learn the business from the ground up. The expectation, of course, is written in beforehand in contracts is, once you learn this, you're not going to go into competition with me. So what are you going to do? You're going to move somewhere else. Then I'll have a network already. If I have five kids that I trained, and this one moves to Limoges, and this one moves to Lyon, and this one moves to Berlin, and this one, you already have a, that's how the Jews did it. And the result is that now this couple, when he's 18, 19, 20 years old, something like that, after he learned the business, and that's already becoming a, a, a man-man in those days, and she'll be a woman-woman, so uh, they'll have 150, okay, or take a little off, 120, 130, uh, and with that, they'll start their business. They'll, right, do, go into the jewelry business or the other business, and the cycle repeats itself, because when they'll have children, then they'll have to do the exact same thing, won't they? What I just described to you is how, what you call, Shane Gidden, middle-class Jews or whatever, uh, did it for hundreds and hundreds of years over and over and over again. Because there was no choice. There was no unemployment insurance. There was no social security. There was no social safety net. There was no reliable banking system or anything like this. So what do you do? And I repeat, I'm talking about good parents. Now, everything is great, but you never know how life turns out. And so if you have two kids that get married when they're 12, who's to say that he's going to turn out to be the breadwinner? You understand? At 12 years old, you don't know. It might turn out by the time he's 15, 16, 17 years old, he's a real jerk. Right? Any money you give him, he'll blow it in five minutes. Maybe he's a nice guy, but he's a gonzalo yusluch when it comes to business. Right? I'm not talking somebody who's an abusive this and that, and I'm talking about that at all. Not, you know and I know. Not everybody is successful as a business person. Correct? You say like this, I, but his father was a businessman when I did all this. You know and I know. That doesn't mean anything. How many people do we know that the father built a boat? When I grew up, I saw this right and left where I was growing up in Forest Park. The father came over from Europe. He couldn't read English. He built up a whole business. He sent his son to business school. He, the father died. He left it. A kid six months later was down the drain. Right? Very common. So not every, So my point is like this. So here you have the $120,000, $130,000. They're both 18, 19, or 20 years old. And it turns out like this. She's got it, and he doesn't. Right? What are you going to do? Are you going to say like this, this is a male-dominated culture, and so the man will be the better? They can't afford to play games like that. You just can't afford it. You could, God forbid, lose your principal, and then you're doomed. Where are you going to get that from? You, you understand what I'm saying? And so the result's going to be, however they, you know, uh, deck it out, however they decorate it, she's the breadwinner, right? At the end of the day, whatever he does, but the, the bottom line, she's the breadwinner. We have an Ashkenaz, many, it's very fascinating, many records of women who, by the time they grew up, they were running whole businesses, they were CEOs, they were miniature Gracia Mendes types, not like her, but, you know, miniature thing. We have the women who were uh, running caravans and organizing uh, extensive commercial trade and all the rest of it. She turned out she's got a head for it, and she's got the knack for it. And so, so, wait a second. 
so but he said, I guess, but I sit at the head of the table, right? That's true. He said, because this is the 11th century, so it's not a women's liberation movement at that time. He'll sit at the head of the table, but where's the seat of the power? You know, I mean, he's going to make the kiddish, right? <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying, okay? And these things are very uh, fascinating because what you're seeing over here is a very uh, powerful social reality. I repeat, there are two dynamics that can be identified over here. One is the social reality of living in a very small com Jewish community in which you need everybody needs everybody and everybody automatically is chashev, right? And then you have the second reality, which is the economic reality, okay? Which was not uncommon at all at that time. Uh, this would be particularly true if... The, if you're talking about a situation in which um, he's in learning, so then what does that mean? You know, he, this is the period of Rashi and the Balitosis. He could be learning for 10, 20 years, so, who, so, so who's making the living? Right? Now, if he's very talented, like for example, Rabbeinu Tom, you can be a Balitosis and also a millionaire because you just have a great knack for investments. He was a fantastic investor. There are people like that. I'm sure right now in the Kola somewhere there must be some guy who's great in investment, but I don't know. You know, there aren't too many of them, or at least they don't tell anybody about it. The, um, <laughs> we have many records, whether it's in the non-Jewish records or in the responsive literature among the Jews, of all these women, as they say before, who become big business big shots. And you'll be surprised that many historians are of the opinion that the primary Jews who were involved in the money lending business in Ashkenaz in the 1011 and early 1200s are women. The husbands are more in the mercantile business. So the situation is one in which, you can understand, the situation is one in which he goes off to do merchant stuff, you know, the imports, the exports, and contact, whatever. She stays home and actually lends the money out to the bishop, the church, the duke, the count, or stamazai de shkotzim. That's what he says, you know, the, 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 the local people over there. And we find very often in the response to literature that they're always worried. They say, you know, no, they don't like it all. They, to use a, a Baltimore uh, metaphor, they don't like at all that this Jewish lady is going all the times in the slum to collect the rent. You know, that's the, you know, in the Middle Ages to go into these towns and villages and everybody's drunk and, you know, whatever law and order and morals were in those days. And, uh, spend, and, and you know, sometimes they spend two weeks, three weeks over there collecting everything that's coming to them. They must have been tough individuals, right? And, and yet that's the reality of life. You understand? And don't tell me that there aren't consequences to it. And so what we end up seeing is a very traditional society which prides itself on being an extremely traditional society and which doesn't change, but does. Now, the images, we don't change. The reality is that they do. And so you find um, all kind of interesting things. Now, Rashi's daughters is a legend. You know, I'm always laughing at that because it's a very interesting reality over there, but nobody knows the reality. They always do the legends. They always say Rashi's daughter did this, that we're filming, and all the rest of it. To my knowledge, there's no basis for any of that. There's no sources. But uh, the real reality, though, is more interesting because it's more widespread and it's, it's more real. You already find, for example, that to take one example, and I'll give you several, um, there's a whole debate on uh, women, say they make a brach on the mitzvah, they say she's mangroma. Correct? A time-bound mitzvah, which a woman is not required to perform, and she doesn't have to. She can be at home and with her family and all the rest of it. But what if she wishes to? Well, is that really fulfilling the mitzvah? Totally, you make a brach on it or not? 
the Sephardic tradition down till today is they do not because it's not a mitzvah that the women have to do. The Ashkenaz tradition, already starting from the time of Rabbeinu Thomas, if a woman wants to be then she can make a bracha too. You see the difference. Um, you find that um, in the Talmudic time, the women, the men are reclining at the Seder, right? Because only the Chashva people or something like that, the Rebbe and the Talmud, this and that and the other, by the time you get to Ashkenaz in the Middle Ages, many people are familiar with the Rav Yoh, which is quoted by the Ramah. The Rav Yoh is living in Germany exactly this time. Our wives are all chashuv, therefore they all recline at the Seder. Because I'm telling you again, he's the guy making Kiddush, and she's the CEO. He's telling us he's reclining, she's not reclining. Doesn't make any sense. Um, we find now for the first time that in Ashkenaz women want to fast on Er Pesach, if they're Bechorin. Okay? The words into this, is in the Agoda, and I don't mean the synagogue of here, I mean the, the Sefer, the Agoda, right? Which is in Germany, smack in the middle of Ashkenaz, during this page. We find these wonderful stories, uh, if you know where to look, and uh, the, the, uh, the Maril, who's Mr. Ashkenazic Minog, he lived a little bit later, but he's the faithful recorder of the Ashkenazic Minog, and that's what you and I practice over here, and in the reality, is the whole thing about what... Uh, Women who who want to who want to wear towels, cotton, wear scissors. Now, mind you, this is not outside, right? This is different than the 21st century. This is not a uh, you know in your faith thing. It's a towels, cotton under the thing. But what is that? Uh, this is Namariel talking. He says, "Amar Mari Segal He doesn't approve. And he was a big rabbi in the Rhineland, exactly what we were talking about in Ashkenaz in the 15th century. He doesn't like the fact that a lot of women, you find, we now want to take on the mitzvah tzitzis. So the people ask them, if you're against it, then how come there's this big rabbit in Bruna in your town, in Mainz, and she wears tzitzis, a talus cotton, and you don't say anything. She wears it all the time. And the Marilla answered, and he was the big uh, guy at that time, if I tell her she won't listen to me. Therefore, Therefore, better she be a shogig. She thinks she's doing the right thing, and therefore I do it, I'll make a whole fight and a whole scene. What are you talking about? He's the big guy. Right? He was the big uh, halachic authority, and he was a big halachic authority. And, she wants to, and why does she want to do it? And I'll tell you again, you never hear about this Maris Bruna. It's not like I said before, that she's trying to launch a uh, movement or anything like this. That's the very interesting side. There doesn't seem to be that modern ideological movement-oriented component. It's people on their own as a matter of personal religiosity and as a matter of chashivas, of higher self-esteem image, they say, uh, I want to, I'm somebody also and I want to do this because this will make me closer to God or I don't know what. Um, of course, these are minor examples of manifestation of the increased position socially and otherwise of the women in the Ashkenaz when this is not happening in any of the Jewish community at all throughout the whole Middle Ages or even afterwards. The most important and concrete of these are the famous Cherem Rabbeinu Gershom's, right? Where we have Rabbeinu Gershom, who we know very, very little about. I tried to explain it last week. And obviously he was a big person in the late 900s and he died in the early 1025 or so. Uh, and he left almost nothing in writing except this image of an extremely venerated 
Godol of the type that I was saying before. For Ben Gershon says he died my early, that that's it. You know, don't tell me anything else. And he leaves behind a tradition which isn't put into print until uh, a couple hundred years later. That in his time he issued cherems. Those he issued prohibitions. Now who's he? I tried. I think I mentioned last week. In the Jewish law, no one has the right to issue rules that apply to everyone after the Talmud. There's no drabonans nowadays. Even if all the rabbis got together today and said, this is, you know, usher and this is mutter, it would not have the force of law. It would have the force, perhaps, at the most, of social pressure, which I'm not deprecating. It's very, very powerful. Uh, but it doesn't have the force of law, and they, and they would never claim it. This is a principle of Jewish law. There are no drabonans after Hasim Talmud. Okay? So no one has the right to say, for example, you can do this or you can't do this and you have to do it. And yet, in spite of everything I told you before, he does it. And he said, but you can't, you can't, you can't. This is Ashkenaz. Wake up and smell the coffee. Right? And he said, nobody has to listen to it. Nobody has to listen to it, but they all listen to it. Because if it's the land, it's the land of the Minhagim and all the rest of it, they're going to listen to it. And he issued a bunch of, he's reputed to have issued a bunch of famous rulings. The most two that affect the women in terms of the status, and a very practical is the uh, uh, prohibition of uh, divorcing a wife against her will. That's already a big legal uh, step. And secondly, the prohibition of polygamy, which is an even bigger legal step. Okay? I mean, these are huge legal steps. And, you know, nobody knows why, and nobody does. Therefore, I'm sure, perhaps like I did when I was a kid, you read the Marcus Lehman book about how Rabbeinu Geshem had two wives and didn't get along with each other, and that's a legend. That's a bunch of baloney, right? He didn't just do something because he didn't, you know, two wives couldn't get along, therefore he said he's going to issue a cherim and all the rest of it. Uh, those are, the Marcus Lehman books are very nice, but they're teenage novels. That's what they are. I'm serious. I mean, this in the best sense of the word. Marcus Lehman was an important Orthodox rabbi in Germany in the 19th century, and he published a newspaper there. It was like the Jewish press at that time at a higher level, and it was, it was the... Um, sole source of Jewish content for vast numbers of Jews, particularly in South Germany. Uh, you know, in Eastern Europe, they used to make fun of it. They say, <laughs> they get the newspaper and they read the, um, the Torah thought for the week, you know, in the parish, and they make it Rabban and Kaddish. But that actually did happen. And it's not something to be mocked at. This was the reality of it. And he knew very well that young people need something to read on Shabbos. And therefore, he's going to have to put novels in. But it's not the reality of it. We don't know what the reasons are, but in any event, um, it's landmark legislation without question. And it's only possible within this context of Ashkenaz where they kind of make up their own way of doing rules, even though it doesn't conform with the Talmudic rules. Right? And my point is, I guess, people listen. And so um, this radically changes the relationship between man and woman, husband and wife. It goes without saying. Uh, think about what I'm about to say. It's kind of hard to talk about Aish Yishchayel in the context of polygamy. At least that's what it seems to me. Right? I mean, here we make a whole big deal of Aish Yishchayel memes and all the rest of it. Even though it is true that Shlomo Melch had a thousand wives. I don't know, I haven't figured that one out yet. But for you and I, right, it's hard to talk about Aish Yishchayel. And we'll see it in, in a few minutes, iconographic, Ashkenazic representations of the Aish Yishchayel. You don't find this it's, to my knowledge, coming out of the Sephardic and the Arabic Jewish context, because who's the Aish Chayil? Right? Maybe it's the Neshei Chayil or something like that. But, uh, but, but when, when, when all said and done, it's, it, it's, it's a, um, 
a legislation or whatever you want to call it with uh, very remarkable kinds of uh, long-term uh, uh, consequences, okay? And so even though, as I say before, there's not exactly a movement or anything like this that we can identify, but I know what I see. And I know it's all happening in the 10, 1100s, 1200s in Ashkenaz, and I know it's not happening anywhere else, and I'm not stupid, okay? And uh, neither should you be. And uh, really, when you contrast this with the contemporary Jewish communities in Sfarad and Spain, which are perhaps more highly educated in secular studies, uh, and yet the position of the woman is extremely much more inferior over there, and for a variety of reasons, as I'll explain in a, in a moment. And um, if you do in the Arab countries, I mean, forget it. No, there's North Africa, the Middle East, and all the rest of it. It's just, what can I tell you? The Ashkenaz marks itself off early on in its career as a kind of different sort of Jewish community, particularly in its uh, organized set of relationship between the husband and the wife and the genders and all the rest of it. It's, it's, it's really kind of interesting. Now, by the way, Vayner Gershom issued, he's reported to have issued many takanas. You know, the camera again, that's, that's only two. Uh, many of you have heard, for example, that he's reputed to have made the prohibition not, not allowed to read someone's mail. Okay? which speaks pretty bad about Ashkenaz Jews at that time. <laughs> if they had to make a rule, you can't read someone else's mail. It's like the, uh, the uh, what do you call it? The, the, what am I thinking of? In the small towns, the lady with the uh, runs the telephones, you know, listening to everybody's conversation, all the yentas. But nevertheless, he makes such as a hunter. He also, uh, for example, has all kind of rules about uh, you're not allowed to remind, uh, you're not allowed to, to, to tell somebody who wasn't from you, you used to not to be from. Now, that has a specific context in the time of Venu Gershon, and that is because he lived in, 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 in Mainz, in, on the Rhineland, in the uh, second half of the 900s and the early 1000s. As far as we know, it's hard to get the exact records on this, there weren't any persecutions of the Jews at that time, but with one big exception. In the year 1012, in Mainz, uh, some Jew shot his mouth off and had a debate with a uh, priest and he did too good of a job on it, and he persuaded the priest, the priest then converted to Judaism, right? And then all hell broke loose, because the priest uh, had no discretion. After all, why should he? He wasn't Jewish until now. And therefore, he went to flaunt it to everybody else. This really ticked off the authorities. Next thing you know, the Jews are expelled from Mainz. There was violence connected with it. We don't know all the details, but we're told in many sources that Urbana Gershom's own son was uh, uh, seized by them and, and became a Christian. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and we're told, and again, it's hard, I, I want to emphasize for the 15th time, it's hard to get the accuracy of these things because they're all based on one line here or half a line there. We're also told that he sat Shiva for the son, which is the origin of the practice that you've heard of, that if someone's kids convert or marry out, the parents said Shiva. One of them. It's not an atonement or anything. They say that's what Rabbeinu Gershom did. But again, there are other versions of that line for specialists who want to go into that sort of question. So it's a very interesting uh, period over here, and um, therefore it's not surprising that someone like the father or someone like that, if a kid came back or someone else came back to, uh, to Judaism after having converted out, uh, you're not allowed to insult him and say, Zachor Rishonim, remember what you were yesterday. Do you understand? Now that means if he had to legislate against it, what does that tell you? <laughs> Everybody was throwing it in the face. If he had to legislate against it, every time the guy walked in the shul, the man would feel like dirt. You see? 
This is a very important precedent because Rashi will, in the aftermath of the First Crusade, in the late 1000s, 1098, 1099, and thereabouts, reissue the same ruling. There will be many Jews, as we'll see, who, for one reason or another, do not become martyrs, do succumb, will convert. Um, and then when the uh, violence subsides and the coast is clear, as I'll try to explain, uh, they were permitted to come back to Judaism. And, uh, and all, all hell breaks loose because uh, you want to come back into Shoal? You know, you're the only two guys that survived the town. And you now are going to take over the Jewish property of the community? Uh, you traitors and all the rest of it? You can understand that. My husband was killed because he got killed at My wife did this and that and the other, and you want to do it? And, and Rashi will once again say, but Rabbeinu Gershom said that uh, you can't tell a person like this, uh, anybody who wants to come back sincerely has to be taken back on there. But I'll tell you again, anytime you have to legislate something like that, it's a lot of tension, right? I mean, I don't care what he says. It's a lot of tension. Um, I want to have some fun for a minute, and that is, and, and thanks to Howard, I, I can do this. I saw um, the other day in, 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 a, in a very fine book from Professor Grossman, medieval art, reproductions from um, old Moxers from the time of Rashi to Tosas and a little bit after the old Ashkenaz. And you can't, oh, before, I'm going to show it to you, but I'm, before I say, I want to preface it with something. You never know how totally accurate these things are because you don't know who the artist is. We're talking about illuminated manuscripts. Uh, and yet, uh, it's fascinating in terms of the relationship, men and women. In Ashkenaz, as opposed to elsewhere, because you don't find these reproductions only in Ashkenaz and in Italy. Okay? We don't have any, to the best of my knowledge, from Egypt and from, I don't know, you know, North Africa and Iraq and places like that. But you get them out of Ashkenaz, you get them out of Italy, and that's most likely Ashkenazic Jews that moved to Italy. Okay? So, for example, take a look at this. Here, if you, I, I don't know if you can see it. If you, uh, I'll try my best. This is from the Haggadah, from the Middle Ages. And what you see over here, I guess it's not easy to tell, is there's a whole bunch of people at a Seder. Now, here's a man, there's two women. Yeah, that's good. Here's a man, there's two women. Here's a man learning with a woman at the Seder. In other words, everybody's got a Haggadah, and they're all sitting the same way, and they're arguing. And here's a bunch of men, a bunch of women at the Seder table, all in the same family, and they're arguing over the Haggadah. You understand? In other words, it's, it's not that the women are in the kitchen or something like this, uh, uh, as it would have been perhaps at the Rambam Seder or something like that, right? Because he's Spanish, and he's Arabic. But instead... It's a, and this is a Haggadah date. There's a, if you look closely, if you look close enough, you'll see every second, third person is a woman, and every one, every woman has a book, and she's arguing with the man. So in other words, they're arguing over the four sons, they're arguing over the meaning of the Manishtana, and all, and, and all that sort of thing. Let's go to the next one. Uh, here again, here's a representation from Pirkeiavos, probably from a sitter, is all I can tell, Mashkenaz. Obviously, this guy had no trouble making pictures of people. So there's Moses getting the Torah. I'm outside of the two tablets. You can see that, right? And here's the Jewish people standing at the bottom. It's mixed seating. <laughs> if you look closely, it's, 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 it's men and women sitting at the bottom. That's an Ashkenazic reproduction. Wouldn't even today be an Ashkenazic reproduction. And now you won't find this in the Hamodia or the, or the Yeteh because they won't show anything. But, but you have it in something coming from the 11 and 1200s. Let's go to the next one. This is Miriam uh, uh, dancing at the well. There's a tambourine and the others. You know what they split the uh, as Ozzy Asher, Yach Miriam and Avia, and 
I can't, uh, they have Miriam as a maiden over here because you'll see later on all the Jewish women and all the other pictures, the hair is covered. But here, not. And uh, once again, you see the representation of the women iconically. This is, these are icons. These are, this is really the art. Um, represented in a very positive fashion. There's that picture of Moshe. Let's go to the next one. Uh, once again, you have Osbrov, Nisim uh, Hiflesa. You know, this is the poem you say at the end of the Seder, Halel Nerzo. You know, right? Correct? And when you get to the, the end. And uh, here again, if you look closely, here's the Seder, and here's the men and the women. Uh, so first of all, it's mixed seating. It's not like the Gerich Hasidim. And second of all, you see, look at this. Here's two people, probably husband and wife. Uh, she has her head covered, of course. And they're, all, and they're both uh, battling away, battle of the text. He's got a Haggadah, she's got a gun, and they're arguing over here. Now, the author that in this book says they're debating the laws of Passover. That's modern, uh, postmodern, politically correct kind of talk. That's actually not true. But it doesn't matter, right? Because the point is that when you're somebody's, uh, I mean, you look at the beautiful artwork, by the way. You know, I mean, imagine what a Haggadah like that's worth nowadays. But uh, you see, once again, this is very Ashkenazic, okay? There again is the women and the, and the, and the men, the, the brothers and the sisters, the husband, all arguing over what, what, what's going on. They're all flaunting their, their Haggadahs at each other. In other words, <laughs> the wise son is the good one, and the, you know, the bad son is the right one. Let's move on. Here is, uh, I just threw this in, here's a chasana. Watch this. This is a man, right? First of all, he's got the long hair like that. Second of all, he's got a strimal. That's the Jewish hat. Long ago, this is Yekish, so you know you know how they do it even today with the talus over there. I think you, you're all familiar with that. She has. You think this is Hungarian Hasidim? This is Mashkenaz. Even in this culture, the bride goes with the face covered. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Where they wear something over the face, and that's uh, typical, right? Even though, as I say before, it may. By the way, how old is this guy? I mean, he's a young teenager of some kind or another. This is not an old man, okay? The bride has a face covered. Five years from now, she may be the, uh, the, the CEO. That's, that's the interesting fact. Uh, the, there must be the rabbi, I guess. Let's move on to the next one. This is my favorite picture. I wanted to colorize it, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll bring it in next time, Howard has it in there. If you can see closely, this is a family just before Pesach. Here's a father um, in the house. If you look closely, the woman's hair is not covered because she's in the house. And that's Ashkenazic. Okay? Outside the house is one thing, in the house is different. Uh, he is, that's his candle for uh, Badika's Hummus. You see that? There's the little kid helping him with the, with, you know, holding the, uh, the uh, what am I talking about? To put the hummus in the tray, the, the dish, right? Uh, this is in time of a little bit after Rashi. So here's the father with the uh, candle and all the rest of it. I, he's a French juice, you know, it's a yarmulke. Uh, the mother is washing the ceiling. <laughs> you, it didn't start today, right? She, you see, she, this is Pesach, you, you know? You know the old story, get out of my house, because I don't want to hear what the shulchan can make the house trafe, correct? It, it's, it's, it's the, what, she's washing the ceiling, because you take these things seriously. The daughter is Cinderella, she's washing the floor. Okay, right. and there's your domestic scene uh, before over here. What I'm trying to show you is if you know how to um, find the artwork and if you know how to read them and you know a little bit about the historical context of them, they tell you a lot. Okay, now one cautionary note before we 
the part, this is, I think that's, oh, it's, it's one more, oh yeah, this is again, Ash, this is really Ashkenazi, this is the Ashes Chayel, she's sitting on the throne, and as the Pusik says, the father and the sons all praise her, okay, and there she is of course with her, what do you call it, it's not a tickle or whatever, and um, uh, so in other words, she is the, the mother, you're not going to have this picture in Sfarad, right, or at least you'll have to have a row of seats, <laughs> okay, uh, because there's not one wife. So the no, I'm serious. So even the even the artistic renditions of this are reflective of the social reality, which is just fascinating when you think that we're talking not only pre-modern, we're talking a thousand years ago. Okay, um, when when uh, when the mores are being formed in all kinds of interesting ways, this is the community that's going to be hit uh, with, with, with a ton of bricks when the Crusades start. Okay. Let me um, move on a little bit over here. Um, if you, uh, uh, let me say one very important point about the contrast between Ashkenaz and Sfarad, and that is um, the Ashkenazi Jews were really culturally insular, and the Jews in Spain were less so. Just to juxtapose the position of Rashi on the one hand and Rambam is to make the case. The Rambam, of course, as we all know, was a total godel in Torah. He wrote the Mishnah, you don't need me to tell you that. But at the same time, as everybody knows, was an accomplished physician and a philosopher and all the rest of that. Rashi, by contrast, and again, I'm using these as typical examples of their culture, was the opposite of what I just said. Rashi was a rabbi, period. He learned Shas, he learned Chumash, and things like this from Greek, and things like that. He did, he, number one, he didn't know, and as far as we, we, we can do, he didn't want to know. Okay? He didn't bother anybody, he did his thing. And there you have it. Now, um, because the Aristotelian philosophical tradition was so strong in Spain, and for that matter in, in Italy as well, the results are the opposite of what you think. Because in medieval philosophy, particularly in Aristotelianism, and, uh, and particularly the version of Aristotelianism that becomes popular in Europe in the Middle Ages, the women are always down. Aristotle always has bad things to say about women. She represents the inferior side of things. She represents all the negative out there in life. Um, and there are many philosophical proofs for this. Okay? Uh, Aristotle is not there. If you show me today a woman's liver who's an Aristotelian, that's an oxymoron. You understand? Um, and, th and this very heavily colors. If you ever see what the Rambam said, I know they call it Yeshiva Rambam and all the rest, so I'm always laughing when they do that. Because if you ever see what the Rambam writes, for example, about women, it's very deprecating. Okay? And uh, is interesting in that regard. And same thing with the Ralbag and all these other intellectuals who are, you know, there was into Homer and Sura and who represents the inferior and the superior types and all the rest of it. Adraba, many of these allegorically interpret the Adam and Eve story as an allegory to show you that this represents, Adam represents the positive side and Eve represents the tempting and, and the negative side. Um, so because of that, it's contrary to what you think. The Western culture. Uh, militated against an improvement in the um, position of the women vis-a-vis -vis the men in the Jewish society as well as in the general society. Uh, by contrast, in a sort of unexpected way, because in Ashkenaz this simply didn't exist. This is not Provence and this is not um, Italy and this is not Spain. This is northern Germany where all these people are doing is making a living and, and, and working hard at that. And, uh, and when you have time, they do the, the Gemara, the Chomisha, and, and that sort of business. 
So then it's strictly falling back on totally Jewish sources. In Jewish sources in the Talmud, you can find statements for everything. And as you see, the statements that come to be uh, valorized in the 10, 11, 1200s, these are, are the ones that are more in the favor of Noshim Chashuvos. It's just kind of interesting when it emerges uh, out of that sort of thing. I'll conclude over here, because the hour is late, I'll conclude by um, one very important point, and that is that um, this will perhaps help us understand a very fascinating phenomenon of what's going to be in the First and Second Crusades, and that is uh, the leading role of Jewish women in the Jewish response to the Crusades. If you take, read the Chronicles, especially the Jewish ones, almost always, not always, but very often, you find the woman is the first one to commit suicide, to jump in the water, to kill her children, to, 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 to spit on the Crusaders, to reject this and the other. You don't know they have this super uh, um, enthusiastic attitude, and uh, they're often the first to uh, anything connected with suicide, which is the reverse of one would think. Okay, And the truth of the matter is, uh, you're falling back upon old Talmudic precedents, but they're just agaritas. You don't know how to deal with it, but we're not dealing with a question in which, obviously, when there's a crusade, you don't ask a Shiloh what to do, what people just did, you see? And one is reminded very much, and perhaps I'll conclude with this story tonight, um, even though it's a, all this stuff is not a pick-upper, but tomorrow morning is already Shavasa Ritama, so it'll be appropriate. Um, the main story of suicide in the Talmud is about the 400 boys and girls uh, leaving um, after the Chorban Bayashen, after the destruction of the Second Temple, which very briefly reads, Maisa Bedalad Meis Yolonav Yolodos, there were 400 boys and girls, Shenishbu Lekolon, that were captured and were to be sent to lives of prostitution in Rome. Here, Gishu Biyatsman Lomay Misbakshim, they understood themselves, even though they were young, where they're destined. Amru, and they said, Imanu Tov Bayom, on a boy Lechayalom Havo, if we jump over and kill ourselves by drowning in the sea, will we get resurrected? We have Tchisa Mason. So uh, the point is that one of them said, I can tell from a verse in the Bible that the answer is yes, that if they do it for this reason, for a noble cause, you know, to save themselves from the lives of shame, then they will get Listen closely. So all the girls jumped in. Don't say the boys did. So all the women jumped in. Then, then the boys said, is a Kalbachumr. If they did it, then we should too, and then they jump in. So the story itself, which is in the Talmud, written long before the period of the Crusades, is the one in which, very interesting, if you pay attention to the details, the girls are the ones that, why the girls are the ones who jump in? Understand? And once again, you see, uh, long preceding the Ashkenaz even, but intensified by everything I hope that I tried to uh, delineate tonight, um, the very important role of the women in the communities, and the, uh, and the super willingness to lead the charge on Kiddush Hashem, even though if one wants to look at this calmly and dispassionately and discuss the question of whether or not halachically this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, there's a whole ganza long discussion of that, but that is not what happened in 1096. You understand? The long and involved discussions and all the rest of it is not the way it goes. Instead, it goes the way it goes, and then that becomes the precedent and then that becomes part of the minhag. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, 
please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.